You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. It is Monday the 9th of November 2020 here as I record And, of course, the big news is the U.S. presidential election, and Donald Trump has been defeated by Joe Biden. Now, I know that there will be Christians, certainly on one side, who will view things in a particular theological framework. They're the sorts of Christians who are currently posting about one particular issue that seems to be the big focus of conservative Christianity, and that surrounds reproduction. And I even saw somebody who compared um, Donald Trump to Cyrus. So if you like, the Messiah, the Old Testament Messiah, the one who delivered Israel back to uh, their promised land. Whereas on the left, it appears to be more of a, uh, you know, a mixed response, whether or not Joe Biden's presidency is a big change in history. Uh, is he the Messiah? Is he just another neoliberal naughty boy? But nonetheless, from a climate change perspective, which is a big focus of this podcast series, returning to the fold of Paris and promises to go neutral by, I think it's 2050, carbon neutral, uh, are good things. But it all begs the question of how we read history. And in a conference, I uh, recorded a couple of talks for, for online presentation. I gave a paper, and that's the title of this podcast is The Book of Revelation and a Theology of the Future. And the talk was aimed particularly at issues like climate change and the threat of artificial intelligence, but particularly about a theology of history by reading Revelation and doing so responsibly, uh, to borrow a phrase from Michael Gorman. So let's let's begin, shall we, and, and start to dig into the book of Revelation. So I guess one of the key issues, the key identifiers of people's particular stance and the way in which they read Revelation and relate it to history is the millennium. Now, the millennium is the thousand years... Of, of Christ's rule described in Revelation 20. And it reads following. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in its hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and locked him and sealed it over him, so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while. Now, there's three major schools of thought, and you may be familiar with these, concerning this millennium or thousand years. Now, post-millennialism teaches that the return of Christ comes after, or post, a literal thousand years of earthly peace. This peace, in classic post-millennialism, is not achieved by human effort per se, but by the working of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. So there's a strong missionary thrust to it, if you like, as well as that of social action. This represents a smooth transition 
uh, from the present into the millennium. So there's a strong basis for social action, the church being salt and light in the community, and I think creation care, and, and things like peacemaking and nonviolent direct action. However, Tom Wright argues that this view has been rendered largely untenable following the violence of the 20th century, so to uh, world wars and so on. And Michael Northcote, he goes even further to suggest it fell out of favour in the USA after the horrors of the Civil War. On the other hand, premillennialism, hard to say, premillennialism is that view that Christ's return precedes the thousand-year reign. And it's typically presented in a dispensationalist form. Now, briefly, dispensationalism is the view that history is split into distinct epochs where God's will is progressively revealed. And, and there are some complicated schemes with seven such epochs. Or the simplest one is just two, with a strong division between Israel and the church. So it's, if you like, basically Old and New Testament style split. And so one of the fundamental expectations is the political and earthly restoration of Israel. And so you see this in American evangelical evangelicalism's funding of and support for Israel. So they believe that you kick the Palestinians out and you, you get this temple restored and then the end times comes with all this violence and so on. Premillennialism reads Revelation in a quite a literalistic fashion and often as a timetable for our own times. It is largely pessimistic about human history and in some form supports a rapture of the faithful into heaven before a period of great calamity known as the, the Great Tribulation. And that occurs right before Christ comes back. So they expect things to get really bad. And climate change, therefore, rather than to be an issue to be engaged with and combated, is a sign of the end times. And as Michael Northcott observes, premillennialists see peace activism and environmental protection as heresy. Because what are you doing? You're getting in the way of God's timetable. You're trying to delay Christ's return. Now, this uh, analysis of Northcott, uh, it, I think the book from memory is the, An Angel Directs the Storm, is confirmed by William Connolly. Now, he says, rather than... Uh, a sharing of religious and economic doctrines, he sees an affinity of identity and sensibility between evangelical Christianity and what he calls the cowboy capitalism of the media, think Rupert Murdoch, and the Republican Party. The resonance between cowboy capitalism and the evangelical right is the future of the earth. And as Connolly comments, quote, one party discounts the future of the earth to extend its economic entitlements now, the other to prepare the day of judgment against non-believers. End quote. So both involve othering, the former in the present, in the form of violence against the poor on the earth, and the latter the condemnation of the unbaptized to hell, and I add the earth to literal destruction. Now these theological views also have secular equivalents. One is boundless optimism in human nature and technological progress. That's kind of Stephen Pinker. And Margaret Wertheim examines an aspect of this in her book, The Pearly Gates of Cyberspace. You know, your, your consciousness can be uploaded into the computer eventually, and heaven is quite literally um, disembodied. The other is a more pessimistic view that sees humanity as a self-destructive species, where our future is a matter of, quote, Darwinian survival of the fittest. And I put that in quotes because all this rhetoric about you know, red and tooth and claw and survival of the fittest conveniently always ignores the presence of altruism, which is a problem for, for evolution, it would seem. 
And these two views, I think, these two secular views are related in the sense that our hopes rest either on technology transforming everything or making the physical world less important or relevant to human existence. And so in honour of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, I call this beam me up Gotti theology and apologies if you don't get that bad pun. Now, how do we read Revelation responsibly then? Well, let's build up a case for this. Firstly, one of the things that people miss is that the entire Bible is written for us, but not to us. And if you read the start of the book of Revelation, you see that it's a letter from John in exile on the island of Patmos, quote, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he was being persecuted for preaching the gospel. Oh, I wonder why that is. Why? Because Rome demanded that all people join the Caesar cult, it was unpatriotic to do so and more than frowned upon. Whereas John is preaching the lordship of Christ and therefore not the lordship of Caesar. Now, John of Patmos appears to be very familiar with the churches of Asia Minor. And it's likely, going back to Irenaeus at least, that he wrote the book during Domitian's reign. And it's after the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 that Jews and Christians began to call Rome Babylon, which you see in Revelation 18. Now, the book of Revelation is referred to as apocalyptic literature because apocalypse is the first word in the Greek and it means revelation or unveiling. Now, John Collins describes apocalypse as, quote, a genre of revelatory literature within a narrative framework in which revelation is mediated by another worldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation, that's salvation at the end times, and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. Now, I contend that the narrative framework through which we understand the book is that God is in charge of history, which is sometimes hard to believe, I know, and not any human ruler or empire, be it Trump or Putin or whoever you like, and that God's plan for creation is to renew it. And what captures that best is Revelation 21.5, which says, See, I am making all things new. It is this narrative framework that allows us to move from a, a text historically grounded in the persecuted first century church of Asia Minor to considering 21st century existential crises, politics, climate change, whatever. This is not because somehow John wrote precisely about these events, but because the narrative framework is the same. Now, Tom Wright suggests the Bible is like a five-act play. It's an analogy, but I think it works okay. The first four acts are complete, which is creation, fall, Israel, and Jesus, the incarnation. And the fifth act is that of the church, or perhaps the age of the spirit, beginning at Pentecost. And this understanding is consistent with the idea of amillennialism. So amillennialism is the view that there's no literal 1,000-year earthly rule of Christ prior to judgment. Instead, it's symbolic of the present age, the age of the church and the spirit, the age in which, of course, we live. And so we live with the tension of both good and evil existing side by side, be it in our pews, in our countries, or in our own hearts. So rather than having the the kind of optimistic view in post-millennialism or the, the pessimistic view of premillennialism, the A view, to stop tripping over the word again, says we should see both. Now, given that we live in this fifth act where Christ rules, even though not always obviously, it implies that we do not live in the other four acts, but we must improvise as best we can shaped by the narrative framework, the story of creation to new creation. 
Peter ends in his book, and I'll probably talk about Peter Enns' work in another episode, How the Bible Really Works, argues further that scripture is largely about wisdom, which is by its very nature fluid and contextual. There's no wood and acting out, that won't do, but faithful yet novel improvisation will help us move from a world that believed heaven was up and held down to dealing with issues like climate change, AI, and democracy falling over. So then, revelation and history. So time obviously doesn't give me the opportunity to to perform a complete analysis of revelation, but a few observations. Its critique is of empire. Chapter 4 begins with, after these things, which Grant Osborne sees as a rhetorical device rather than the temporal one. In other words, every time you hear the phrase in 7.1 and 9.15.5 and 18.1, for example, it means a progression in vision rather than an earthly timetable in which we, we map events from history. The one, quote, sitting on the throne in verse 2 is clearly God and there's John being deferential to the divine person uh, and being faithful to the command not to make a graven image from Exodus. The throne of God sits at the center of concentric circles of a rainbow, 24 elders and four living creatures. God is the center of the action and very much the focus of the scene. The outer rainbow takes us back to Genesis 9, which is, remember, the rainbow covenant and the promise not to destroy the earth with a flood again, and a divine covenant with all of creation, all creatures, all flesh. This is important to counter both Christian and secular narratives that the fate of the earth is not important and points us forward to the Edenic language, that's the language of Eden, at the end of the book of Revelation. While drawing on Hebrew Bible imagery, there is the context of the readers to consider. And Michael Gorman, in his book Reading Revelation Responsibly, points out that there are numerous similarities between this scene and those of the Roman imperial court. Actual history. The emperor was attended by lesser kings giving him golden crowns, hymns and songs of praise, and he even had a travelling throne that he was carried on. Um, yeah, amazing. The 24 elders in a revelation, they fall down before God and cast their thrones of gold before the throne. And J. Nelson Craybill points out a similar scene in the history of Rome. Let me finish the first half with this. Tiridates, apologies if that's mispronounced, Tiridates, the king of Armenia, made a long trip to see Nero and Rome. In wanting to become a vassal of Rome, obviously for its protection and not having their their armies march in and destroy everything, he intended to place his crown before Nero so that he could take it back up again. Now Nero threw a party in expectation, spending, get this, 300,000 sesterces out of the annual imperial budget of 800,000. As Tiridates approached the throne, he knelt with both his hands on his breast. He announced himself as Nero's slave and said, quote, I have come to you, my God, worshipping you as I do Mithra, who is the sun god. To which Nero responds that Tiridates has done well to come to, quote, enjoy my grace. And he declares him king of Armenia and that he has the power, he has, sorry, quote, power to take away kingdoms and to bestow them. And so the scene you're getting in Revelation 4 is politically charged because it's taken straight from political history, saying that, no, um, it's not Caesar who's in charge, but it's God. Not sometime in the future when the persecution stops and Christ returns, but right now. 
Jesus said that the rule of this world had been cast out. That's John 12, 31. And that all authority sits with him, the Lamb. That's the Great Commission in Matthew 28. God rules and not Caesar, and Rome is under divine judgment. Taking this view seriously, we can now understand John's words to the book, The Church in Smyrna. And I really will end this uh, half by looking at this. To be part of the Roman Empire meant participation in the Caesar cult. To reject worship of Caesar for worship of the Lamb meant social and economic exclusion, if not active persecution. The church in Smyrna was in poverty. We read about that in Revelation 2.9. And Ben Witherington, New Testament scholar, suggests this was due to exclusion from trade guilds because the the Christian, um, the early church, tradies, for want of a better word, craftsmen, uh, wouldn't engage in the worship of Caesar. Now, Smyrna, we, we know now, is the second city to embrace the imperial cult demanded by Domitian. And Witherington reminds us that the poor are under no delusions of the false sense of security that wealth can bring. Because they didn't have any. The message of Revelation should, however, speak also to those of us who are rich in our need, as, who are rich in our need to rebalance the books, as it were, and stop ourselves from Caesar worship, or worship of the economy, or whatever else. So more on this in the second half of the program. Welcome back. In the first half of the program, it was a real whistle-stop tour of the book of Revelation. And one of the things I'm trying to establish is that there's there's two views of, well, there's three views, rather, of the millennium of the thousand-year period in the book of Revelation that can give us a picture of what a biblical understanding of history might be like. There's post-millennialism, which says that Christ returns after a thousand-year period of peace and that the mission of the church now is to literally bring that peace in and expect things to improve. Premillennialism says that everything goes to uh, kaka and that nothing physical really matters. It's just the spiritual. And that's kind of the dominant view in a lot of conservative Christianity. Either it really obviously so in their preaching or, you know, obvious in the view of, okay, the election's over. Let's get back to our core business, which is preaching the gospel, which means something a bit short of what I think it means. And there's amillennialism, which says that there's a thousand years of, well, it's it's not even a literal thousand years. It's that period now of the age of the church, the age of the spirit, where Christ rules history, uh, even though it's not necessarily apparent. But that this says that God's in charge of history and other rulers are not. So it begs the question of how you're meant to respond and live in, in, in light of that. So, and then we finish with this scene in, in Revelation 4, where you've got the 24 elders laying down their crowns. And we saw that that's actually a scene pretty much taken from history. And so it's a sharp critique of imperial power and pretense to divinity. So it seems to me that this scene in Revelation 4 presents us with three key ideas. The first is that God is the God who renews creation. The second is that God alone is worthy of worship. And the third is true worship is unavoidably political. 
Let's go through those. So Tom Wright calls this view creational monotheism. So if you go forward a chapter in chapter five, the lamb brought into the center of Jewish mo- the lamb um, is brought into the center of Jewish monotheism. The lamb is the one who, can, who saves and is worthy of the same praise as God. And we take this for granted as Christians, but for first century Jews, this was kind of a deal. The drama of the scroll in verses 1 to 4 is over who can open what Michael Gorman calls, quote, the eschatological plan of God to judge and save the world. This answer, of course, is the heart of the gospel, which is that Israel's long-promised Messiah has finally come to usher in the Messianic age. The Lamb takes the scroll and the position of authority at God's right hand. This Lamb is worshipped with and as God. That's verse 13 of chapter 5. So true worship is not given to an imperial militaristic potentate of the first century any more than it should be given to communist demagogues, self-obsessed narcissists or techno-venture capitalists. And you can pin some names to all of those if you like. Note also that in Revelation 5.13, there's a link back to God as creator, which is in in, uh, Revelation 4.11. The praise for God and the Lamb comes not from the angels and not from the 24 elders and not from the four living creatures alone, but from every creature. Quote, Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. They're the ones created. praising God. So to put it in fancy terms, creation is doxological. Uh, It's an act of praise in of itself and it recognizes God and the Lamb as creator together. The central vision of Revelation 4 to 5 then supports the idea of amillennialism, I think. We live, uh, here's another big word, I should stop slapping these into these things that I write, proleptically, in the light of the coming consummation of the kingdom and we're not to fear, live fearfully in the present. So prolapses is set in essence. It's a bit like um, if you're walking in a dark uh, railway tunnel and you see a light at the end, you assume that it's the light at the end of the tunnel and start walking towards it, not the train coming forward to hit you. So you start living as, as though the end were, were already there in a way. You know, you've been trudging down this tunnel and feeling cold and depressed and it's dark and so on and you're just going by the light of your iPhone or whatnot and then you see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's like, ah, we're there. Even though you've got a distance to walk, that's prolepsis. So we shouldn't be occupied by trying to read the signs of Christ's return but understand that he will come back like a sneaky thief. And that's the message of Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5. In the context of any secular narrative of progress which can have religious overtones. Terry Eagleton identifies that the kingdom of God brings to fruition a pattern of transfigurative moments imminent within it, a fractured narrative of justice and comradeship which runs against the grain of what one might call its central plot. Now, the it he's talking about is the the narrative of progress that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that it's technology or politics or philosophy or whatever it is you think is going to improve things. And say no, within that narrative of, of progress by technology or whatever else, there's the kingdom of God. And there's this pattern of transfigurative moments imminent within it, which is, you know, those little signs of beauty or of justice or um, creativity, love, 
um, which can be in a handshake, can be a work of art, a song, an election result. They're not necessarily saying that the end has arrived or that by our own effort, moral effort, things will, will improve, but it is the Christian calling to help the world to flourish and to bring about these transfigurative moments, um, which is a fractured narrative of justice and comradeship running against the central plot of this progress of uh, this narrative of secular progress. So it's not like we're making the world new as such. We're not, our individual acts don't quote unquote save the world, but they're signs that the saving of the world is happening. And so we need to participate in them be active in them, getting our hands dirty, as it were, in those things, rather than just viewing it, cheering from the side or, or jeering from the side, as, as some might do. So such a view expects the world to descend neither into chaos or to rise into utopia, but what we might that we might see moments of both, right? And in those transfigurative moments, be they inside or outside of the church, we are seeing for a while the light of the future. And I, I make this point quite clear that these sorts of things can go on outside of the church and let's be honest, let's have a good look at the conservative side of the church. Often these issues, these these lights of the future, often really are outside the church. Anyway, let me move on. So as the vision of Revelation 4 and 5 makes clear, the future is creation affirming. This means that any understanding of Revelation 21 as a scrapping and starting again is at odds with the narrative framework. So the making all things new is not making things again, but renewing things. As Gail Heidi notes, the idea of the first heaven and earth having, quote, passed away is not a literal destruction, but that they've departed from John's sight. And so, as Heidi says, God is not making all things anew. He is making all things new. Of course, this gels with the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, of there being no more sea, because in the ancient world, um, the sea is the where the sea monsters come from, who are agents of chaos. You, you, there's a whole background. I've talked about this before in Genesis 1, but even in Revelation 13, one of the beasts emerges from the sea. And so what the sea being no more is not a literal earth with no no salt water, but the, quote, the old order slash system and the power of evil have been removed from John's sight. That's a quote from Heidi. This renewal of the political order is apparent in the Edenic imagery. Now get this, right? The, the river of life flows from the throne of God and the Lamb, just as the four waters found their origin in Eden in Genesis 2.10. The tree of life, once pro- forbidden uh, or prohibited for sinful humanity to partake in, that's Genesis 3.22-24, is now freely available, not for individuals, but for the healing of the nations, producing fruit year-round. Even the leaves bring healing to the nations uh, so that they're no longer enslaved to Babylon and the ways of godless empire. Uh, Such a right is given to the one who conquers empire through the lamb. So Barbara Rossing makes the point that this bounty of the tree represents a new economy. So it's an economic vision. Quote, in contrast to the economy of Babylon slash Rome, which was characterized by famine and hunger and an exploitative system of taxation that squeezed peasants and the poor, God's holy city has food for all. So feeding the hungry is divine work. Get, 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 get giving to charities now. Get, get involved in funding aid and development projects. Better those than, than mere charity, obviously. Uh, the Gospel of Revelation, then, is about true worship of God and the Lamb who was slain to ransom people from every tribe. That's Revelation 5.9. A kind of rapture in reverse 
and a people building without regard for national boundaries, yet also blessing nations. It's unavoidably political. How can you read this in a non-political fashion? It represents political and economic liberation because these two are spiritual. And it rejects profit-making at the expense of the lives of others or of the earth. Remember Revelation 18.3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of, her, of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth has, have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And it's a direct dig at Rome at the time. Or Revelation 11.18. Your wrath has come and the time for judging the dead. For rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So we don't engage in this or sit by and cheer it because it's signs of the end times. No, it's sign of human sin, and particularly sin at a let me get this right, sin at a systemic level. So, and I come back to this point quite often, is that yes you should become less consumptive. You should become less greedy. You should consider what your job is and who you work for and all the rest of it. Yes, you should recycle your plastic and consume less plastic. Uh, But yes, we should be campaigning to end the use of fossil fuels. Yes, we should be pushing companies to stop using the garden variety plastic or move away from plastic altogether. Here, maybe you should hop on a plane less, but let's put pressure on the aviation industry to find another alternative because travel broadens the mind is a wonderful thing to connect people, etc., etc. So you can talk about the individual responsibility, but if the system is corrupt, if there are Caesars in charge who undo environmental protection laws, who prop up industries that should be going the way of the dodo or the dinosaur vis-a-vis the fossil fuel industry, or engage in all sorts of other activity that just undoes our future. You know, where does the where's the balance of um, what am I trying to say? The the balance of the responsibility lie. Yeah, in our individual choices to make the path easier for this, but those in power who believe that they're God when they're just tin pot Caesars, well, they need to have their cage rattled a bit. So, what do we draw from what I've just said about? You know, the kind of weighty issues that we're talking about, climate change and whatever else. The central thrust of Revelation is that God is in charge, not any earthly ruler. The shape of divine ruler is the lamb who was slain, and the goal is nothing less than the liberation of the whole of creation from the chaos that human misrule creates. And I say chaos, riffing back with the, the, the disappearing of the sea and the vision of Revelation. This means renewal of the world around us begins now. Liberation of humans from economic and other form of oppression begins now. So let's consider two ideas really briefly. Now the first is climate change. Now obviously the ideal world is one where climate change is adapted to and ultimately mitigated against. And adaptation means you cope with what you cop and mitigation means you avoid the worst of what's coming. And that's you know renewable energy etc. Now adaptation might include genetically modified organisms. But if food sovereignty is compromised in some countries where farmers are forced to use GM seeds, or they end up in debt as a result, then it doesn't matter how safe GM seeds are. The technology has become exploitative. Likewise, there are mitigation techniques that can be distributive, so wind and solar, that make a network more stable and less under control of companies that squeeze consumers. 
Think, for example, gas companies exporting cheaply but charging higher prices domestically. Or consider reforestation or artificial photosynthesis over larger and potentially biosphere-disrupting geoengineering techniques like putting reflective particles um, in the atmosphere or filling the oceans with iron to try and fertilise algal growth to absorb carbon dioxide. Not all cooling methods are cool. Secondly, let's think about artificial intelligence, which I've not really touched upon, but it was it's an interesting subject, I think. Uh, that's presented to us as the inexorable march towards progress. Even if it doesn't take over uh, military or further militarization of the police using such technology is oppressive. Doesn't matter uh, if data if it's data or demagoguery that makes the droids dance. There's a nice alliteration for you. So let me use it again. Doesn't matter if it's data or demagoguery that makes the droids dance. Or indeed, if automation, quote, frees people from mindless tasks, but they are not unable to find meaningful labor, are they not once more enslaved? So I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, there's a bunch of solutions to climate change. They're not all equal. Um, when I say solutions, I mean adaptations or mitigation. Some of them are incredibly oppressive. And likewise, technology, be it AI or any other thing that you can think of, it, it's a bit of a cliche, but it could be used for good and niceness, to quote Maxwell Smart, if you're familiar with that, or evil. So Revelation should really give us a view that is agnostic about technology in our future in many cases, but not about how it should be used. And hence that directly deals with politics and the marriage, unholy or otherwise, with, with the church. Um, it should not be about building an empire, but serving the Lamb so I hope that that brief kind of overview makes you think about the book of Revelation as being far more radical, not frightening, uh, but liberating. So it's intensely political text. And so I recommend um, my book, All Things New, God's Plan to Renew Our World, uh, Michael Gorman's Reading Revelation Responsibly, and Barbara Rossing's book, the title of which always... It just doesn't stick in my head, but it's about the rapture, um, debunking it in essence. So anyway, I hope that's been helpful. Uh, thanks for listening as always, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.